All right. Joining me to welcome you all to this on Wednesday the 7th, 2006, is honorary and very tired mascot, Barbus, who smells like a fish market because he's been rolling outside. All right. Say goodbye, buddy. <laughs> I'm welcome everybody before it's the 7th of September. Hope you're doing well. This is uh, Fight Week for UFC 203, and this is the Promotional Practice Live Chat. I'm your host, Luke Thomas. I appreciate you watching. Thank you very much. Today on the uh, chat, you can hear Mr. Mr. Barbas walking around. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, UFC 203 discussion. UFC Fight Night Nice is on your mind. So. You pitch the question, you have a meaningful response that uh, you enjoy. Or not. I don't know. I'll do something like that. Uh, best place to get your comments and questions in on MMAfighting.com. And uh, the comments that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. You may also be in with Thomas and preferably use the hashtag chat rappers because I may not necessarily see if you just show up tagging me. Uh, all this information is, of course, contained in um, what you call it, in the post itself. Okay. I uh, hope everyone's doing well. Um, uh, programming and housekeeping notes. The gentleman designing t-shirts is going to give me the next phase of the design, I think in about a week. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And so I guess um, that means when I come back from vacation, I will have maybe something for you to look at, maybe. We'll see. Uh, but in any case, I'll be gone next week and the week after that. So I think there'll be a Monday morning analyst. If you want to watch that for Monday, I'll try to have one together, no promises. There definitely won't be a live chat next week, and there will be one after that. It'll be, I'll be back after that. There's also no MMA beat tomorrow. So, sorry about that, um, but the train must roll on. Okay. Let's see. First questions first. All right. Tim Kennedy's PTSD post. Luke, I really want to know uh, about your thoughts on Tim Kennedy's PTSD post that went viral last week. By the way, what is the number of shares up to? I clicked on it like a few days ago. What are we up to now? 35,000 likes and shares. That's what I want to know. Um, 35,000 likes, 13.5 thousand shares. Yeah, that's the definition of viral. It certainly did go viral. Uh, I liked his message of making something out of life, but his way with words is jarring. Openly talking about killing women and children, phrasing things in a way that made some people believe he was calling PTSD, PTSD victims, this is the word, pussies. What are your thoughts toward his post? Yeah, I actually had him on my radio show last week, and we talked about the full uh, episode, is on his, uh, uh, the full clip is online on my YouTube channel. Um, if you want to check that out, you can decide for yourself. Long story short is, it was interesting to note the reactions to it. Um, I was sort of split down the middle, right? Because what I noticed was people who had military experience, really any kind of military experience, I don't know that they necessarily <clears throat> agreed with him, but they weren't really horrified by what he said. And I saw a lot of people who were just total civilians, well-intentioned people, of course, and they were horrified by it. Uh, I was not horrified by it. Um, certainly the portion about killing women and children is unsettling. I don't know the particular circumstances that led to that. Um, you know, as a general rule, this is why I always say, uh, I think many others have certainly shared this idea. It's not mine at all. It's pretty common. Uh, war is, uh, horror it is horror. And, um, 
That is why you don't want to do it unless absolutely required. But that's not really the substance of the post. The substance of the post is uh, the PTSD. Were so, so there's two different arguments. One is there's a certain phraseology that he used that was unsettling to some. And then others, like, is what he is prescribing a real antidote to PTSD? And so this was my issue. I really don't have too much of a problem with the phraseology. I asked him forthright, are you calling people with PTSD pussies? And his, and his response was, no, I'm, I'm certainly not doing that. Um, his answer was essentially that this is a way of phrasing someone as a call to action. And if you've never served in the military, this might sound profoundly strange, but it, it's really true. Like, and again, you have to just forgive my language here. If you've got kids who are, you're, you, if you're watching this and the kids are in the room, just give, I'll give you a second to get that fixed. But um, the fact of the matter is military service members talk to each other in very stern, harsh ways, but not not as a way to lecture in a negative way. You know, like if you're climbing a rope and you're not getting up there fast enough, <clears throat> someone might tell you, or just to motivate you to go faster, get your ass up that rope. <laughs> I mean, this is what they will say to each other. Like it's not at all uncommon or they will challenge each other's manhood or masculinity. I don't think that's exactly what this was, but I just mean that's another common tactic that is used. And, and that might be quite toxic outside of military contexts. Um, for very understandable reasons. In fact, if you take some of those ways of interacting with one another, including both the phraseology and the intent of it, and then you bring them to the civilian world, you can find yourself in, in, in trouble. This is language and a culture of language that is essentially built around combat. How would you talk to each other in the most high-pressure scenario? Um, let's keep a level of conversation that roughly mimics that at all times. And you can see how that would be problematic for other circumstances, but it has a real value to the military generally. So when I read that, that's, it just sounded like that. Um, in terms of the substance of his arguments, and I told him on this in the interview, again, you can hear it for yourself, um, I disagreed with what he was suggesting was an, was an alternative. I, look, if you know anyone who served in the military, you can vouch for this claim. Um, uh, certainly, I've entered, went to Afghanistan, and I've... I mean, countless who went to Iraq, um, the whole nine yards. There are very, very different levels of PTSD. There are some that are incredibly traumatic. 22 veterans a day are killing themselves on average as a consequence of PTSD and the inability to process and manage the kinds of stress that it, and depression and other um, illnesses that it, that it brings. There's a lot of them that have a relatively mild version of it. I think if you have a relatively mild version of it, doing what he is suggesting, which is sort of going all in on occupations, going all in on um, some kind of, um, you know, uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's a good point that he made. You know, exercise can be quite cathartic um, and training for something in that kind of regimented way, as he put it, to your seeing stars. If you've got a very mild version of PTSD, that might be okay. Um, but generally speaking, if you look at all the forms of PTSD treatment, they all involve basically two things. One, some kind of medication, typically benzo, uh, benzos. Um, they can be overprescribed and addictive, but they do have some, there is some research to indicate that they have value. And then the other one is essentially finding different methods to really confront that which it is causing stress and uh, sadness or depression in someone's life. Um, most PTSD treatments find ways to manage it, to address it, to control it, but they do that by directly confronting it, um, not from running from it. 
And uh, that is where I basically part ways with Tim Kennedy. But I can understand um, if you've got a very mild version of it, and I've seen some very mild versions of it, they essentially, uh, I don't want to say this, I want to say get over it, but they just don't deal with long-lasting consequences of it. Uh, but I've seen other guys who have it really, really bad, and they're not even in a position to get up and do this sort of carpe diem uh, act that Tim Kennedy is prescribing. If you're seriously mentally ill, and again, PTSD can bring along things like severe depression, you're just not really going to be in the kind of space to make those choices about your life and your health and your profession. You, you are deeply wounded psychologically, and you need people around you that can help you to you can even get to a point where you can make those decisions. The good news about PTSD is it's treatable. It's very treatable. Um, and I understand military service members trying to police each other to get the best out of them, to help them heal. I don't agree with what Tim Kennedy uh, suggested was the right answer, at least for the majority of the serious cases. But there were people calling on me and other people, including, I'm not sure what sort of reaction Brian Stan got personally, but I know he addressed it on his show. Um, the idea that we're supposed to ostracize him because he said unnerving things, I don't, I don't really agree with that at all. Um, sure, I have plenty of room for disagreement, and, uh, and I, I can understand people having a different sensibility to these things, but for the sensibility that I have, my problem was in his assessment of treatment. Um, the idea that I'm supposed to like, walk away from him and help have him hold on to ideas that I don't think are medically... Um, sound or backed in in uh, rigorous studies um this is my responsibility then to have a conversation with them veterans should talk to each other about their experiences about what they know and try to raise the bar and that can also sometimes be the blind leading the blind but um it's better than you know siloing people and ostracizing them for having what could be controversial views and there's a lot of people out there being like oh my god tim kennedy said horrible things about ptsd yeah maybe Maybe, what are you doing to fix PTSD? And right, you don't ha necessarily have to be out there campaigning Congress to have an opinion about whether Tim Kennedy said was right or wrong. But, you know, there's a lot of really, like, feigned concern for the troops. Like, 22 of them are dying all, all, every day. There are people in your community who are suffering. There are people who you know who are probably suffering. You know, I mean, it's it's not that you have to necessarily be the world's greatest PTD, PTSD expert or, you know, advocate to weigh in here. But... I certainly would take your opinion and outrage a lot more seriously if I thought you were doing F all about it otherwise. Um, they need help. They need your help. They, every, they all need your help. And I guarantee there is someone in your town that you may, not, may know is suffering from this, even if they don't necessarily let on. So at least Tim Kennedy's out there and making a conversation about it and um, doing so in military language. But the, the majority of the military members I know find quite comfortable. Uh, we don't want to alienate or, or um, you know, uh, make the plight of those currently suffering from PTSD, whether slight or severe. We don't want to make them feel like um, um, they are lesser for having this condition. Uh, and if that wasn't a consequence of what happened, then certainly that is, uh, you know, this is not okay. But um, I, I don't really believe that that's actually what happened in the real world. And... Um, I, I I bet, in general, Tim Kennedy has done significantly more to help those with PTSD than those who are decrying him the most vociferously. I would wager that, you know, I agree with what he said in this particular case, but in terms of, like, hands-on 
what he's done for the guys around him. I, I, I suspect it's a lot. Like, how many of you have gone to a veteran's house and helped him through months of sadness? Like, have you really done that? You know, I bet he has. All right. Uh, does a CM Punk victory on Saturday mean the same thing as if he would have fought and won when he first signed on? What is the value to the UFC right? What is his value, excuse me, to the UFC right now? What do you expect the numbers to be like? You know, someone actually asked me an interesting question yesterday, which was, what is like a worst case scenario for uh, CM Punk in this situation? Would it be if he got, let's say, you know, choked down 30 seconds or viciously KO'd? And my thought was, well, certainly that wouldn't be great, but... You know, 0-0 fighters make a lot of mistakes a lot of the time. Um, that Guys in the UFC get starched that quickly. I mean, there's, what's the fastest UFC knockout? Seven seconds? Something like that, right? I mean, or six, whatever you want to go. The, the Dwayne Ludwig rule or, or um, you know, the Korean zombie, whatever the case may be. But the point being is people get lose quickly even at the highest level. That, that wouldn't be unusual. Um, I think what would be bad is if it actually didn't sell. That would be the worst thing. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, serious illness or something or, or uh, God forbid, some kind of tragic accident. I don't, I don't mean that, but I mean like, okay, even if he lost badly or something, but was basically okay, what would be a bad thing about that? That wouldn't be good, but to me, it would be really bad was even if he won, no one cared. Now, I don't find that to be likely, but I'm just sort of pointing out like what would be the worst case scenario was a bad loss coupled with the fact of there wasn't necessarily strong financial returns. I find that unlikely at least. But you get the idea. Um, to answer your question, though, would a victory Saturday mean the same thing as if it would have if he fought and won when he first signed on? Well, he wasn't ready to compete when he first signed on. Now, I think you mean on that initial timetable. Um, maybe. Maybe. I guess we'll see what the financial returns are uh, to see exactly what kind of a to see what kind of a uh, market response he gets. Um, and you're asking about his value. His value is only insofar as it can be sustained. You know, if he loses badly and a lot of people watch, will they come back for a second one? I think what the UFC is looking for here is win or lose. Because remember, Lesnar lost his first fight. I think what they're looking is win or lose. Is there enough there that we can push this to a second or third or beyond that kind of act? Is there more there there? That's really, to me, what they're looking for here. That's the line in the sand. Is this something we can trot out again? And you're going to laugh at this comparison, but it's a really helpful one. See the show? I mean, I actually wore this by accident, I swear. This is the UWC. This was a Mid-Atlantic promotion, um, you know, roughly around the time of 2006 to 2008-ish, 9-ish, around that, around that mark, even 2010, I think. Um, and I had done some work for that promotion. It was just a local show in the, in the Mid-Atlantic area here. And you'll recall that um, the Green Power Ranger fought on that card. Now, it was an all-pro show. What they did was they just had an amateur fight on the card. Those guys had amateur licenses. And what actually wound up happening was, I think his name was Jason Day Frank. Jason Frank Day? <laughs> Something like that. What's his name? Uh, Jason David Frank. Yes, Jason David Frank. Okay. Um, he fought on that show and he won. I think he won by guillotine or armbar or something. But I remember, like, he gets tackled, like, a minute or so in. Or I, I don't remember exactly the details, but it was a short fight. He gets tackled by a guy. I think the guy had a weight advantage on him. And when he tackled him, he, like, threw out. I mean, the, you know, Frank won, but, he like, in the way that he got the submission, he threw out his back. Remember, he stood up and he put his hand behind his back. Like, he just looked kind of old. And I remember, and he was. I think he was, like, he was well. How old is that guy? Yeah, he was, like, 37 at the time he fought, which is kind of, I think, what Punk is. It's old, man. That's super old. So 
for athletics anyway. And I remember afterwards people were like, okay, that was cool that we got to see that, but I don't know that we need to see that again. That's what I think the UFC wants to avoid. Win or lose, I don't know that that really matters so much. Did he look good enough to trot him out there again? That would probably be um, what, the, what the actual value is for them in this particular scenario. Uh, what is to be said of Kane and his greatest of all time heavyweight status if he becomes a three-time UFC heavyweight champion? We all know the UFC heavyweight belt has been defended, uh, only been defended twice in all of UFC's history as per fighter. Uh, Cain Velasquez, in my opinion, has the best pound-for-pound fighting style for MMA. Is one of those great uh, fighters um, to defend the heavyweight belt twice. So if he wins a third belt, would that be on par with the achievement of defending the belt three times and cement Kane as the greatest UFC heavyweight of all time? Yeah, I think Ben Folks has a piece up today about that, which you can check out. Um, I don't know. You know, he would be doing something that no other heavyweight has done, so perhaps by default he would uh, approach that. But then you got Overeem this weekend. I don't think if Overeem wins the title, personally, that makes him the best heavyweight ever. But it would be unusual to have a guy who was the Dream Champ, Strike Force Champ, UFC Champ, and a K1 Champ. I mean, that would be pr- that's a spectacular thing. That's a real major achievement, um, big time, super big time. Uh, for me, that doesn't the, the, the fact he's got like double digit losses makes it impossible to say he's this given the other resumes the best ever, but. I don't know. I suppose if Velasquez won the third title, it would be such a novel achievement that we would have to um, reconsider things. But I still believe that more than anything, it has to be a couple of things. It has to be that, and then let's say potentially something like a long win streak. It has to be winning the title or something like winning the title and then defeating maybe a couple of the guys who had beat him previously, or always already BJDS, let's say Verdum, right? Going back and beating Verdum. That would be kind of a big deal. That would be important. I just feel like it's not, we keep looking for this one next big act as this ultimate threshold for figuring out who's the greatest heavyweight. And I just feel like we'll know it when we see it. You know, if we're really having trouble, difficulty discerning one from two and two from three for various good reasons, um, then what it's going to take to really separate someone is going to be a balance of things. Um, a win streak that goes on for a while, holding a title in a way that no one else has held the title. And certainly winning it three times would qualify, but um, you get the idea. It'd have to be more than that. Um, Everyone's looking for these next act. Oh, Overeem wins the title. Is that it? Eh, Not for me, you know, unless he wins it and goes on this really long win streak. He beats Cain Velasquez and then, you know, holds onto that belt for a while. That might change things, you know, but... um, Certainly, it would give him a stronger argument. It would give him a uniquely strong argument relative to all of his peers. But I just feel like um, the way in which we've defined greatness in that division, it's like um, one person is measured on the metric system. One person is measured, you know what I mean? Like one person is measured in Celsius. One person is measured in Fahrenheit. And we haven't quite figured out um, which degree matches what on the two different scales, you know? And then you got another guy who is measured it in Kelvin or something like that. So now, and the point being is now we know what Celsius equals in Fahrenheit, but I mean, imagine if we didn't imagine if we had no real basis to compare the two. We've got these really sort of different ways in which we measure things. And if we don't have a language to speak in between them, it can become quite difficult to really assess greatness. So that what you're talking about the third time, that would definitely be interesting. It would, it would make the argument stronger, but 
I don't know. I would need to see some see something more. So I went to Chipotle before I got here. What do you guys get in your Chipotle uh, burrito bowl? That's what I get. I don't get the burrito. I get the bowl. I get uh, not always, but sometimes brown rice, pinto beans, <laughs> the peppers and onions, uh, double chicken, and then uh, sometimes guacamole, but mostly not. And then just lettuce. Um, oh, I get the I get the pico de gallo and I get the hot. I don't get any of the corn, the sour cream or cheese or anything like that. But so sometimes sometimes I'll go in on the guacamole. But the double chicken is key. That's what's what's key. All right. True or false? Uh, Conor McGregor is now a bigger draw than Ronda Rousey. Ooh, that's a tough question to answer because it's hard to know what you mean. Um, but certainly, I would say. Given her absence and given his growth during that period, he appears to have the higher Q rating. Maybe not, though. Uh, Anthony Pettis is a better submission artist than a striker, considering he's tapped out Bendo, Melendez, and Oliveira. Yeah, you know, uh, Cole Miller suggested something like that. I don't know that he's a better submission artist, but he certainly is not thought of correctly in terms of the way in which he dispatches opposition. It's strange that Matt Brown, Gunnar Nelson, Ryan LaFleur, and Magny all lasted much longer against Maya than Conda did. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, Matt Brown's really good on the mat. Uh, Gunnar Nelson is extremely good on the mat. Ryan LaFlair is very underrated. Now, lasting less than Magny. Not to disrespect Magny, you're talking about all great fighters here, of course. But um, I don't know. Part of me was like when they announced that fight, everyone was like, this fight's going to be amazing. I'm like, only if Condit can catch him coming in. Like, otherwise, it's going to be what it was. Um, you know, then the other part about it, of course, he said he got hurt on one of those elbows. Um, and it really changed his ability to sort of fight things off. I don't know, man. Like, on the one hand, I see, what, I, I know what you mean. Like, a fighter of this caliber, you know he has better rear naked choke defense than that. He wasn't even hardly fighting the high hand, you know. We went over this in the Monday morning analyst. It just wasn't, it wasn't particularly difficult for Demi and Mai. And not in a way where there was, a, there was a skill differential. But it's one thing if I was a skill differential and I'm fighting tooth and nail. There was a skill differential, and it didn't look like Condit was fighting tooth and nail. And that, to me, was a little bit disconcerting. Was it from the shot he took from the elbow? Could very well be. Is he really just done with fighting, and there, he doesn't even really know it yet? That could be it, too. You know, It's, it's really hard to know. Um, the Magni one, I find surprising. The other ones, LaFleur, Nelson, and Brown, I don't know that I find it surprising he lasted less than them. Um, Condit's been out there... Uh, <laughs> really trying to transform his game, training in the gi, talking about how hard it's been, and I, how do you not respect that? And I'm not saying that that was the best representation of Condit either. I don't think that Harley is at all his best, but um, that's the one that Maya let him have, and it wasn't much. If Bendo shows up like he did last Saturday, Michael Chandler will probably knock him out. I don't think probably knock him out. What I will say is, if Bendo shows up like he did last Saturday, Michael Chandler can win. Yeah. I don't. Did you guys watch that fight? You can watch it on Spike's website for free if you haven't seen it. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre. And everyone's like, "That's how." Well, not everyone, but there have been some who have said, "Oh, that's how Bendo fights normally." Mm-mm. Mm-mm. He even acknowledged as much as much after the fight that it was a little bit couldn't quite pull the trigger after the fight, and or uh, after the fight he spoke about how he couldn't pull the trigger during the fight, and how it was a little bit weird for him. And and certainly he's been counterfighting at times, like forcing the action and then reacting. 
he was he, he had lost the first round and was well on his way to losing the second just by virtue of inactivity. And the weird part is it was inactivity, but it was a guy who was directly up on in terms of his distancing. Um, Pitbull, he was backing Pitbull up and then cornering him and just not just not doing much. Now, again, we mentioned it before. He got the leg. Uh, he checked the kick and it broke the guy's leg and fair play to him. That's a clean win. Fair enough. But there are still overarching questions about what it meant that he was really unable or seemingly unwilling to pull the trigger in a way that would have been required had that leg break not happened, um, which those leg breaks, again, are fairly unusual. Not unheard of, but unusual in terms of the frequency of, of um, taking place. So, yeah, Michael Chandler has been rebuilt and I think mentally rejuvenated, which cannot be understated as an important factor. And I don't know exactly what's going on with Henderson. Again, I don't think that's his best performance either. But the question is, where is he now? I don't think we have a very good answer to that. So you say probably knock him out. I don't agree. But win? I think there's a very strong case. Rumble really did knock Glover's tooth out of his mouth. I believe that has been determined to be false. Brian Stan has been consistently on point since becoming an analyst. Yeah, yeah my favorite analyst right now, currently. Uh, Joe Silva's decision to leave the UFC was influenced by the company's sale to WME IMG. If that's true, it's a well-kept secret. It was surprising to see Jan Blahovich, I kept calling him Blachowicz, Outstrike Gustafson on the feet. It was a very bit surprising. Man, you look back in retrospect and you think now, geez, that was really the appropriate fight for this guy. It was great that he got this after the Cormier loss. He needed a bit of help. He needed that guitar frets and uh, the strings to be tuned up, man. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. That's really tough. Um on the one hand, it's surprising only because you expect so much more out of Gustafson. You expect him to be able to really pump the jab. You, when you see a guy's flashes of brilliance, you you come to expect that to be the standard of their behavior generally. And so we have this really lofty uh, set of expectations for him. And what winds up happening is some guys can fight differently for different levels of competition. Who knows if he had some kind of injury? Who knows if he didn't really train that much in this particular capacity? Who knows about whether or not Blahovich had really improved his accuracy, which appeared to me to be the case a little bit. He used to be kind of sort of a white. He had put good combinations together, but um, not really many of them. He could do it, but it was rare. This one I felt like he was, you know, and because he would miss a lot on, on half the shots. I feel like this time he was putting things together m much better. And he was hot right from the break. Gustafson wasn't. So to me, that tune-up fight, to the extent that it was one, served a purpose. Um, he needed a moment to get back on his feet, to rethink things, to to get acclimated back in there again after what was a really difficult fight. And I think there's some open questions, too, about to what extent he's been damaged in fights. But nevertheless, um, he got the win. He did it with, you know, really fantastic wrestling. Uh, not, Blahovich's takedown defense is not the best I've ever seen, but just the ability to have that kind of back pocket Ace in the whole level of skill is uh, a reason why he's still relevant as a contender. Yeah. So it says fantasy matchups. And then the person asks, how are these fantasy have a good chance of happening? All right. Don't hold me to these. We're just going to flip a coin, basically. McGregor versus Alvarez. I'll say, you know what? Just to piss people off, I'll say McGregor. Rumble versus Jones. Still say Jones. 
Gustafson versus Teixeira. Ooh, that would be tough. Man, that's a tough one. Uh, I'll, t- I'll say Teixeira. I don't know. Pettis versus Edgar. I'd probably say... That's another tough one. I'd probably say Edgar. Maya versus Woodley. I will say Maya. Cowboy versus Larkin. Another tough one. I might say Larkin just because of the hand speed. Magni versus Story. You know what? I would have said Story before. I might say Magni now. Oliveira versus Yair. Oliveira. Garbrandt versus Lineker. Ha. That's a tough one. God, man, Lineker's just so, so hard-headed. I might say Lineker. Tim Means versus Ellenberger. I still might say Tim Means on that one. Although Ellenberger looked awesome. Covington versus Usman. Usman. True false. My heart melted when I read about Misha Tate carrying the injured girl on the mountain. Heart melting is a strong way to put it. However, I was pretty impressed by Misha, and I definitely, I think, in real time, shared the post she put up on my Facebook wall. She's like a good person, you know. In need, what's this? In need of challengers at light heavyweight. Hey, Luke. Since Gustafson and Bader both rebounded and won on Saturday, should they be matched up against one another? Yes, that's the way I would like to see this go. If John Jones is not coming back, now you ask, or with John Jones being in limbo and a lack of contenders at 205 pounds, does it make more sense to build them up for potential title fights with the winner of Rumble DC? Thanks for the recommendation to watch Narcos, which I finished by the way. I also finished the night of last night, which was good, not great, but good, uh, or even very good, but not great. Um, okay. Right. So I would like to see Bader versus Gustafson. I think that would be really good. Open questions about both guys. Can Bader be a contender again? Like a, like an elite level contender? That would be a crazy thought, right? After some of the losses that he has had. Uh, Gustafson, can he still maintain that top spot? Can we keep that hierarchy? And you just sort of go ahead and you make Johnson versus DC. I really believe, and you might laugh at this. I don't know. I, I just don't. I've said it before. I don't want to belabor the point. I really am very skeptical that the NSAC is going to do something that we're going to find rational and keeping with scientific norms. I think they're going to be very, very much uh, unwilling to, I don't think they're going to break the back of John Jones. Maybe they don't give him a two-year ban, but they're not going to give him one that's going to put him back on a timeline to be back in the octagon very soon, even if USADA does, or who knows what USADA will do, but you get the idea. So I I am, um, I I would go ahead and move the division forward. I really would. Just let's, let's put this in play, you know, and if it's not as exciting, then fine. It's not as exciting, but, um, we just got to move on from John Jones at this point. He can he can hop back in the queue when he's ready, and who knows when that's going to be. You know, win, lose, or draw. What kind of performance does CM Punk need to have to get the Luke Thomas seal of approval? He can't. It's not possible. However, let me sort of explain what that means. And someone says, "In the less covetable seal of approval, of the general MMA fan base also had to expect this fight to play out." Um. Let me be clear about this. I, I, I don't expect anything from him. And like, in fact, here's what the, and I, and I mean that in like a good way. Here's the interesting part about this. This is a pro debut. In the, this is not a pro debut, like, I don't know what the equivalent would be. This is not, um, 
if you get called up like like Lucas Giolito on the Nats, if you get called up, and he's a top prospect, but if you get called up and it's your first start on the Hill, right? You're Lucas Giolito. You can't go out there and just get shelled. That would that would not be the end of your career, but it would not be great. But there's a little bit of pressure on you. But when you make your pro debut in tennis or something, or you make your pro debut in I don't know, the uh, even while the NFL is only 16 games a season. But the, the point being is this: certainly in the case of mixed martial arts and in boxing too, you don't want to lose your pro debut. It, it's always something that begins to not haunt you exactly, but it becomes a footnote to your career that people always remember. But the truth of the matter is, it doesn't really matter if you win your pro debut. Like, it doesn't say a whole lot it, for a lot of reasons. Typically, if you're making your pro debut, you're not 37. You're probably 27 or, you know, in some cases, even 17. Um, there's this future ahead of you that people don't want to necessarily hold against you. Now, if you come up there and you look amazing in your pro debut, well, okay, then things can change. But the point being is, I've been to a million fights, and I hope many of you guys have. I hope you guys support local MMA. If you go and you watch an 0-0 fighter versus a 2-0 fighter, this is not an insult to them, unless it's the rarest of circumstances. There will occasionally be exceptions, but most of the time, it's Donk versus Donkerson. That's just what it is. You're not good at 0-0. You're just not. Maybe Frankie Edgar was when he was 0-0, and then 2-0. Okay, but that's Frankie Edgar. A guy who's been a belt holder at one of the toughest divisions in the sport. It's not the average person. It's definitely not a guy who has no athletic background. And even for Mickey Gall, everyone's like, he's 2-0. He's a brown belt. Look at this interesting match he had with Gordon Reiner, purple belt. Yeah, that's great. He's obviously got some skills. No doubt about it. But he's 2-0. And he fought, you know, look, he fought tough guys. But he didn't fight tough guys enough to tell us a whole lot about him. Long story short, we don't know a whole lot about Mickey Gall, to be honest. We don't. I mean, the oddsmakers think he's got the edge. I tend to think he's got the edge, but I don't really know. Like, you don't know a lot about these guys because there's not a lot of footage on them. There's not a lot of footage on them because fights at this level end like that the majority of the time. And they just haven't put anything together of note. So, like, what am I expecting? I'm not, like, part of the reason why I don't even like him fighting the UFC is I don't think it should happen in this kind of organization. But the other part is, put that aside. Let's say even if you, you did and you're rooting for him. Okay, that's a... It's a fair position to take, I suppose, at this point. Certainly, it's a, it's a not not a uh, uncommon one. But the other part about this is everyone's like, got these expectations for him. That seems unfair to me to him. It's there's no way he's going to be good, and that's okay. That doesn't mean he won't be good eventually. That just means he's going to have maybe a couple of things he does okay on fight night, and probably a lot of mistakes. Like, why why would that be the case? Well, think about it logically. We often define fighting in terms of um, you know, what is, what is his record? What is his background? And that's a, that's a helpful way to measure it. But the truth of the matter is, and I made this point before, two years of training, if you're 21 years old and you're Frankie Edgar, that can be a substantial amount of training. Two years if you're 37, and it's not even quite two years, it's more like 18 months or 16 months or whatever the case. Um, that's nothing. It's nothing. You need all that to get better, of course. It's not nothing in the sense of it doesn't matter. It matters in the long term. But just that window is is nothing. You, you're not, unless you're a real deal athlete. I mean, I mean a real one. Not like you're kind of a good athlete or you can run a seven-minute mile. Even a six-minute, I can run, I, well, not anymore. But I have run a six-minute mile in my time. It doesn't mean anything. If I can run a six-minute mile, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing, Okay. So that, that, this is my point. Like, being in shape is not the same as being an athlete. 
being genetically gifted and then also sort of being up for the, the, the challenge of this. Um, people don't know anything about themselves until, well, I mean, I'm not saying they don't know anything about themselves in terms of their amateur fights, but you got to get in there a few times, man, to see if this is something you really want to do. Although you might figure it out after one, but I'm just pointing out, like, when you watch an O&O guy at a 2-0 guy at a regional level show, it's a guy who trains at this good gym in the area versus a guy who trains at this good gym in the area. Uh, maybe one guy's a little bit better in jiu-jitsu than the other one, whatever the case may be. They're going to have some things, you know, in their tools. I mean, they have been in the gym. They have learned some things. But they're going to be so unrefined. There's going to be so many gaps. Someone like Mickey Gall can do a lot. But someone like Mickey Gall, who's 2-0, and you should measure what he's doing partly as a function of how many errors they make or how many things they omit. That's really what you need to do. Because, because I can teach him, or not I, but the proverbial I, you, the coach, whatever, anyone. They can teach him an armbar from the guard and how to sprawl, and they can put combinations in his brain. He can get all that down, and he can watch his diet. He can get good. Those are things he's mastered, maybe, or at least has some proficiency at. But one, he doesn't really have the ultimate degree of proficiency about him. And two, there's so many other things he has no time to even focus on. I mean, this is sort of like saying, you know, oh, I trained for two years. Wow. So you, you have an associate's degree and you're looking to, um, I don't know, win up. I mean, this is a, too much of an example, but, you know, you're looking to defend a thesis on some esoteric topic of, um, biochemistry or renaissance feminism or you know whatever like it's so it's nothing it's not it's nothing um so like you know what am i expecting i'm expecting him to show me roughly what a 37 year old man can get with hard training for about 18 months which is frankly not a lot uh that's not an insult you or i would be no better we'd be probably exactly where he's at maybe even less because i bet he's worked really really hard but this is the point the point is not to see some human interest story um, driven by this larger, let's turn the world into a Make-A-Wish foundation. It's the, the, the beauty of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, although I suppose now we're moving into a territory where it can be this in a real marketable and potentially sustainable way. We'll see. But uh, speak for yourself. I'll speak for myself. For me, I like seeing guys who are really good at it do it. And there are not many of them. There are 600 guys in the roster, but there's – not that many who could do this very well. And of course, ladies as well. That's, that's the point, is that the fight game, if two people can't fight, a fight sucks. You know, even if two guys can't fight, a fight can sometimes suck. Um, and of course, sometimes if two guys can't fight, a fight can be good. But generally speaking, if you go to enough regional shows, go to enough local shows in your area, you will see 0-0 guys versus 2-0 guys all the time. It is quite common. It is Donk versus Donkerson. It's just what it is, you know, because it really 99% of the time, it can't be anything more than that. That's all it's ever going to be. So if Punk can get in there and show a couple things, show some sprawls, maybe put some punches together, you know, maybe get up at the bottom once or twice, like that'd be plenty for me, plenty. If CM Punk wins on Saturday, what do you feel the UFC will do with him? Do you think they'll move him with the rankings gradually? I don't. He can't ascend the rankings. There's nobody in the rankings he can beat. They shouldn't even sanction that fight. There's there is no ranked welterweight. There's there's not. I don't even know if there's any unranked welterweights that he can beat. To be perfectly honest, 
Uh, or do they try to pu push him to be a big star and really throw him against one of the top welterweights in the division after this fight? There's no way they'll put him. I mean, I, I can't believe I even have to answer this. Or do they try to push him to be a big star and immediately throw him against one of the top welterweights in the division? I don't, I don't know how to explain this. Imagine if someone came to you who looked like he looked physically, which is a, an in-shape guy, no doubt about it, slight musculature is what I would call it, his build, and said, um, I want to be a pro bodybuilder and I want to compete at the 2017 Arnold's. And he goes, I got 18 months to do it. You would just, you'd be like, <laughs> you could take all the steroids you want. You're, there's just not enough time to be that big. It's 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 literally not possible. That's what I would say to to him. Now, if he came to me and he was like pretty big and had a an, you know a very amazing physique, and it clearly had been working on it for a long time and just needed to fine tune it to some degree, or you know give him a year's time can really put some mass on it and then fine tune it. Well, then we can talk about whether or not the Olympia is a real thing that's available to him. But if just a person shows up who's like in shape, has done I don't know CrossFit or something or or, or whatever, just pick it ten, tennis player. And they said, I want to be a pro bodybuilder. I want to debut in less than two years. You'd be like, dude, there's just, there aren't enough chemicals in the world that could get you there. And you can train seven days a week. It just won't happen. That's what this situation is like. So when you guys are asking me, like, what's next for him? Is he going to fight someone ranked? He can't. It's, it's not only unethical. It, it, <laughs> it would make no sense. It would make no sense. Guys, this is the whole point we're talking about. It's not this far apart. It's this far apart. It's like as far as I can go far apart. It's nowhere close. What about sparring hard rounds in the Rufus gym? Would that not help him in some way with his lack of experience? Sure, of course. All those things matter. All the all the rounds in the cage, all the rounds of takedown defense. You know, you were, this coach sets it up. Okay, we're gonna do five five minute rounds of nothing but takedown defense. Go. All, all those are going to make you better, but every other fighter and every other person who trains in America does that. Those are not sufficient conditions for greatness. Those are just necessary ones. Those alone won't carry you to victory. I, 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 I don't want... Training is really hard, and not everyone gets good fast. The overwhelming majority of people don't get good fast. Virtually no one gets good fast. Two years is fast. Ten years is not. It, it just, it's just time. And even with that time, after four years, think about how many fighters you guys have seen being like, why doesn't this guy improve fight over fight? Yeah, he's got this ability, he's got that ability, he doesn't seem to improve, he doesn't. Not everyone does. Not everyone does. Not everyone can blast through breaking points. Not everyone can even get themselves to this level. It's super difficult. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult to even get to this level, much less maintain, much less continue to improve. We just take it for granted because we see greatness all the time. It's, it's insanely difficult. It's insanely difficult. Why can't Tim Tebow be a pro baseball player? Because it's too late. And he's an athlete. It's, 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 not, it's not possible. It's not possible. That doesn't mean he can't get... But, but this is my whole point about this whole thing. He's never going to be good. Like, I will bet my mortgage on that. He will never be good. He'll never actually be a UFC-level fighter. It's not possible, okay? You know, why, can't, why didn't Kimbo get better? I don't know, because he couldn't. Like, he's just not one of the guys who's really 
what was it written in stone? Oh, well, he didn't train that hard. Well, that's a component too, but that, you know, uh, plenty of guys don't train that hard. They can get pretty good. Um, if they're elite level athletes and have some sort of natural, John Jones didn't train that hard. Look, look what he did. Of course, he's an outlier. I'm just sort of pointing out that just training hard is not a guarantee of anything. It doesn't mean anything necessarily. Um, but, but this is my point. People are asking what, what we're looking for, what we're going to measure this on. You should think of him as just any old guy on any old card making his debut on a Saturday night. If that was your friend, if that was your neighbor, and you saw him out there doing that against a 2-0 guy, and they showed you some flashes of some things they've been working on, then you should give him a thumbs up. It's truly, truly. That's, that's what this is about for me. I'm only looking for that. So he doesn't have to do a whole lot to impress me because I just don't I – don't, I cannot imagine a scenario where he's actually – I'm not Faraz Zahabi, I'm not Rafael Cordero, but I've been in enough gyms to know that two years, if you're 37 years old and you've got a history of concussions and you're not an athlete, is it is like turning on your sprinklers and, you know, wondering if this will lead, if people will be confused that it's raining. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's not how this goes. All right. Uh, upcoming fight night card rankings. Luke, how would you rank the upcoming fight nights in order of best looking to worst? September 17th, Johnson versus Poirier. I haven't looked at the whole card. Um, let's see. Let's see. I think I missed that one because I'm on vacation. All right, so basically it's Dustin Poirier versus Michael Johnson, Uriah Hall, Derek Brunson, Alejandro Perez versus Albert Morales, Juan Carnero versus Kenny Robertson, Chris Wade versus Islam Makachev. Ah, that's okay. It's very so-so. Cyborg versus Landsberg. Let's see. So we got Cyborg versus Landsberg. This doesn't appear to be very competitive on paper, but I guess we'll see. And then Boral versus Felipe Nova, Roy Nelson, Antonio Silva, Francisco Trinaldo, Paul Felder. That's a good one. Tiago Santos versus Eric Spicely. That's a decent one. Good over to Pepe versus Mike De La Torre. No, not particularly. Although Gilbert Burns is fighting on that card. I was like seeing Gilbert Burns. Uh, and then Dodson versus Lineker. So then we've got John Lineker versus John Dodson. Will Brooks versus Alex Oliveira. That's good. Hakran Diaz versus Brian Ortega. That should be interesting. Luis Smolka versus Sergio Pettis. Whoa. Or Luis Smolka versus Sergio Pettis. That's a very good one. Walt Harris versus Shamil Abdurrahimov. Uh, Josh Berkman, Bobby Green, that's a good one. Tam Dan McCrory versus Nate Marquardt. Ooh, that's a tough fight from old uh, Marquardt. Kelly Fastholtz versus Ketlin Vieira. Luis Enrique De Silva versus Joaquin Christensen. And Elizu Zaleski Dos Santos versus Kaita Nakamura. That's a good card. It's a fun one. That is going to be the one in uh, Oregon. It's a good one. Fitch versus Shields on the same night as UFC 205. Luke, where does this decision by the World Series of Fighting rank on the stupid meter? They've scheduled cards against UFC before, but a sleep-inducing fight like this on the same night as the New York card, that's almost as bad as signing Paul Harris in a way. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a, it, it feels like the Coker strategy, but not understood to what the Coker strategy is. So, for example, 
Now, they've never confirmed this to me, but I've noticed that one thing that Scott Coker likes to do is he will wait for um, a lot of news in the UFC to break or for there to be a UFC event. But just at some point when you think of when are MMA fans going to be online and ready to consume MMA news, uh, be it hardcore and casual alike, you know, again, when things are hot, when news is breaking and what a big UFC event is going on, the idea is let's surf that wave and help use that general enthusiasm from the fan base as a way to get our message out there as well, as opposed to just sort of releasing on a normal day and hoping that the Bellator news machine will move it forward, which seems to me quite bright, actually. That seems like a very smart strategy, the way they do that. But what they don't do, if they can at all help it, is go head-to-head with the UFC, which makes sense because that changes the game a little bit. It's one thing to put out news when MMA fans are paying attention to a different product but maybe willing to at least acknowledge yours. That's very different from a fight, especially the one like 205, where not only is the bulk of the attention not going to be on what you're doing, people might even forget about it. They'll be so focused on something else. In other words, it doesn't, like the UFC halo won't lift up World Series of Fighting, will only trample it. But more than that, it's going to be hard to get reporters to go to it because everyone and their brother is going to be sending people to UFC 205. There's no way I'm missing that. Even if I had to pay my own way, there's no way I'm missing that, right? Like, everyone and their brother is going to go to UFC 205. It's going to be a big deal. So um, it just draws away attention, and it draws away the ability of the media to give you even a basic level that you would get, potentially, if you were in a favorable location on a more favorable evening. Um, So I don't get it. I really don't get what they're doing, to be honest. Heavyweight division. It seems like every fight is a legit toss-up and that any of the top 10, 15 could be champ on a given day. Does that make heavyweight the most interesting division or the least interesting division? Um, It makes it either depending on the bizarre nature of the outcomes. In other words, if the wins play out in such a way that the fan base loves following where it's going, it will be that. But the the point being is it's not intrinsically one or the other. It's just dependent on how everything shakes out in the end. Um, so if generally there's a favorable set of outcomes, we will just review it as a good thing. If there's a real you know, unfavorable set of outcomes, we'll review it the opposite. But it's not, it's not inherently good or bad. It's merely what it gives us. Top three UFC 203 fights. Look, which three fights on Saturday's card are you most looking forward to? Mine are the main event, Calderwood, Andrade, and McCall Borg. Honorable mention goes to Verdun Brown, Faber Rivera, and Yancey Medeiros versus old, I think, Sean Spencer. Let's see, UFC 203. Definitely with you on ben, um, on a McCall versus Borg. That's a big one. Definitely like that one. I like the main event, actually, to be honest. I mean, it's the main event for a reason. Um, so I say McCall versus Borg. Main event, and I will go Faber Rivera. Let's see what old Faber's got left. That's, that's no one is talking about that. That's sort of a big deal, and he's on the main card too. Gadelia becoming her own head coach. I was surprised by the recent news about Claudia Gadelia leaving Nova Uniao to become her own head coach. If I understood the news item correctly, have there been many top level MMA athletes who have also been their own head coach? And do you expect this to be a positive or negative thing for Gadelia's future as a fighter? 
Um, it really depends on the person and who they surround themselves with and they can find a formula that works for them. You know, Rampage has been his own coach for years. And you might say, well, two diminishing results. And that might be true, but there are other guys. Even when you hire a coach, do you hire him to tell you what to do? To It, it depends on what you're – she's still going to hire people. Like, she's still going to hire a strength and conditioning coach. She's still going to hire, um, you know, uh, or she's going to make sure she has sparring partners around her or someone to help her with strategy in some kind of capacity. But I, I think there's a sort of, like, top-down teacher-student relationship that she is now – trying to reject that's the difference right but you're still going to have people filling a majority of those roles both during fight camp and during the fight itself when she goes back to her corner there are going to be people who are telling her you need to adjust this of course it's up to her to adjust that but you get the idea so um i think what she might be objecting to is the kind of managerial role that a coach in andre pitaniris's position might enjoy the stable of fighters under him um, perhaps she has bristled at that a little bit and doesn't want to do that anymore. Uh, and, and I don't know whether that will work for her. We'll have to see if it does or not. Uh, hey, Luke. Yes, that's me. I recently rewatched Sage Northcutt's last fight at UFC 200. As it had at the time, it struck me how while some of his techniques were high level, a lot of his game, especially on the ground, was frankly amateurish. Thank goodness there was a Dillashaw versus Aslan Sao 2 after that to wash the bad taste out of my mouth. But learning that Northgate made 100K for that poor showing while Dillashaw got only 50K for his mastery made that taste return with a vengeance. My question, how bad will the Punk versus golf fight look in your opinion when compared to the actual pros and how ridiculous will Punk's disclosed salary be? Well, he's certainly going to make a lot, but if he draws a lot, then I don't really care, nor should anyone else. Like, Part of the reason why he well, he has to do his job, part of the reason why he's there is to make money, of course, for himself and for the promotion. So if he brings in strong financial returns, the fact that he's getting paid doesn't bother me at all. Like, I would like all guys to get paid, like CM Punk is being paid. So I'm not mad at the money he's making. But um, people keep asking how bad is it going to be. I don't know that this is going to be like Kimbo versus Dada or something. Those were two old guys who couldn't do a whole lot. But, and certainly, what's his face? Uh, CM Punk is old, but Gall is not. Like, a lot of these fights where guys are 0-0 versus 2-0, they go like that because these guys are so error-prone. They can put together sometimes decent offense in the right context. You can see it, right? They know how to go to a takedown and then pass and then to the back and then choke. They have some, they have some proficiency to establish a chain of offense to ultimate victory. But they've got so many holes along, even that way, and then there's so many gaps in their knowledge, um, and they just make all kinds of errors. They make all kinds of errors. Really, low-level MMA is basically error-prone MMA. What you should be looking for when you get to the big leagues is not so much as one guy do this and not do that, but like in the application of their game, how many errors do they make? And in the application of the other person's game on them, how many errors do they make? And you'll see in low-level MMA, they're just donkaments. You know, they're just, they're just documents and that's okay. Right. We've talked about this, but like it, it, you keep saying how bad will it look? It may not look that bad because it may not last that long e either direction. Like again, I'm not as a world beater. He might be, he seems promising, I suppose, but we don't really know a whole lot to be honest. So to me, if this fight goes 30 seconds or a minute or something, that would not be even a little surprising, you know?
All right, there's some weird question here. This point I don't quite understand. Um, all right, y'all keep asking about Tyron Woodley. <laughs> when I'm done talking about Tyron Woodley, but you know, I, I make a pledge to answer the questions you ask. So here we go. What do you make of Tyron Woodley's remarks on racism and him in general? Okay, here's the question. As a member of a 10% minority population in my home country, I don't know what country that is, where I am discriminated against not only socially, but by law, I understand the plight of black American people. But isn't Woodley making a mountain out of a molehill here? He's talking about chat rooms and such where people are anonymous and say whatever just to get reactions. The same group that Misha Tate, uh, that Misha Tate made her very quotable remark about. Also, while I was totally on board with having Woodley as a champion, man, his comments after the fight killed it for me. Even though I'm sympathetic towards him, I find it very hard defending him now. Did his comments kill off any fan base that he could have had before it even really existed? Is the choosy one a better fight name for him? All right, so let's go through a little bit of this. And I don't, I don't know why I'll keep asking about Tyron Woodley, except... Okay, let's just get through this, please, because this is not, like, top-of-the-line news. Um, but okay. He says, I understand the plight of black American people, but isn't Woodley making a mountain out of a molehill here? He's talking about chat rooms and such where people are anonymous and say whatever just to get reactions. The same group that Misha Tate made a very quotable remark about. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, you're just getting tweets and people sending you nasty emails. Your life is not necessarily terrible, right? That's not the same as something like a real credible threat of violence or a real kind of, you know, think of some sort of incontestable uh, form of discrimination, whatever that may be, you know. Getting things said to you in a nasty way is, is a fairly low level of that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like, if someone is sending a, a person of color you know, they're sending them, you know, really hateful tweets. And I saw some where a guy posted a gorilla head on uh, Woodley's body and sent him, like, taunting messages. Um, if, if someone you know is, like, being treated like that online, are you supposed to just look at them and be like, dude, it's just chat rooms. You guys, you, you just got to get over it. Like, I'm not saying it's the end of the world. It's it's not. He'll be, you know, he's a big guy and he's an adult. He'll be able to live through it. But um, I could understand not being like super thrilled with it. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how angry you should be, depending on the level of vitriol, I suppose. But there is that. And they say, well, I'm totally on board with him having uh, Woodley as champion. Uh, comments after the fight killed it for me. I'm sympathetic towards him, but I find it very hard defending him now. His comments killed any fan base that he could have had before. It was even really existed. Well, he definitely made a choice, right? And we'll say this. A lot of people go out and they're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I want. I don't care what people say and blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people say that. But then when the rubber meets the road, they kind of backtrack. Now, I'm not saying that, Ma, that oh, Maya. I'm not saying that Woodley is doing that. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But there's a cost associated with candor in this world. Um, sometimes that candor comes in the form of craziness. Sometimes it just comes in the form of speaking out against prevailing norms. Sometimes it comes out in the form of uh, cruelty, whatever. But there is a cost to it. There's a reason why most people are not honest with each other. It's because there's a cost to it. They don't want to pay it. So um, we'll see how much he wants to pay that cost because I can certainly agree, whatever one's opinion on race in this issue, certainly one thing that has been, uh, I don't see how one could possibly challenge this, he has not gone out of his way in any capacity whatsoever to endear himself to the fan base, right? He has, in fact, purposely positioned himself on the other side of their interests, which, again, you can make those choices if you want, but you have to be willing to prepare 
and to be prepared to pay the, the consequences for it. Um, and some of that might come in, in other ways. Uh, that doesn't make those consequences great or like yay for them. But in the world in which we live, there, there, there simply is a level of the cost you have to pay, be it harassment, ostracism, could be financial, could be familial, or whatever the case may be. Um, we're going to see to what extent he's willing to pay those costs. Um, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but we'll find out. So it says, follow-up question. Um, do you think it was a mistake for Jed to use the Woodley Race article to headline the Morning Report on Friday? No, no I don't. He didn't close the comment section. He did not. That was an editorial decision that was made above him. Um, so, and also those, you know, some of the editorial decisions about what goes in the Morning Report comes from the top down. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame Jed for anything. Such that blame is even the appropriate word. Uh, morning report lost out on discussion as there are multiple other topics in the morning report worthy of comment. Fair enough. Although some people are racist, my feeling is Woodley simply alienates a lot of potential fans and is quite unlikable. I don't know that I would really disagree with that. Uh, I don't personally find him unlikable, but I can look around and see that there are other people who do. And he does alienate fans. Yeah, like he has gone out of his way to do it. Um, he has positioned himself and his interests as saying, I don't need to follow what you as a fan wants to see necessarily at all. Now, not quite that way. I mean, right, he wants a fight. He wants a big fight with a big person of interest. He is trying to galvanize fans in that sense, but not in a really, I want to do, I want to make the fans happy kind of way, right? More like, I want to make me happy, you know, and just sort of use these opportunities to bring some fans in along the way. Uh, and I don't begrudge him that either. And if you want to, we can, we, you know, it's fine. I, I don't really care. It, but the point being is I can tell that those acts have had a super uh, deleterious effect on his perception. There's, there's no doubt about it. Now, the only point about this, and I really would like to move on from this topic because I can just feel the venom that people they can't even talk about these issues anymore. Again, there's a cost to pay for honesty, right? Or at least some version of it. But the point being is the point about Woodley is not that people hate him because they're black or because he's black. They don't hate Woodley because he's black. Some might, of course, but I don't really think that's it. I think there's a number of components to this issue. The one point I ever made, and you can go back to the original MMA beat, and you can verify this, was that am I able to fully remove his race as a component among other components of how he is viewed and treated? No, I am not. If you are, great. I'm not. But I don't think that's the same as saying, well, he's black and they hate him. Only a low-information voter would think something like that. If that's, how, if that's how you hear it, you're a low-information voter. That's what you are. Um, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. It's not saying there is dislike because he is this. It is, among a variety of factors, this is one of them. And you can debate the place of that. Uh, but I wouldn't disagree. Has he gone out of his way to make fans dislike him? Yeah. Yeah, he has. The question is, does he care? We'll find out. Uh, 205, Weidman versus Romero is the rumor doing the rounds. Yes, it is. Have you heard of this fight, and how much do you, how would you see it playing out? Uh, I think Weidman would get it, because I think Romero fades, but I have heard no more about it than you have. Probably better to ask Ariel about that. 
The Barnett versus Arlovsky card, it was a weak card on paper. Did you think it was a weak card in actuality? Yes, I thought it was not very good. Love the main event. Thought that was fine. Um, like I mentioned, was glad to see Gustafson get back on the winning track. Obviously, the Vader win over Latifi was sensational. Prelim card was not good. Uh, the Ashley Evans-Smith versus Macedo fight was okay. Um, another person who's green, right? Uh, and obviously, it was nice to see, for example, Taylor Lapalus come along, or, or you know, you, uh, certainly um, Hermanson versus Askin was cool. But generally speaking, it was, I mean, that George Stanhope Colombo fight was, I mean, I was hoping that it would be like Albert Hitchcock's The Birds, The Birds, what is it, The Bird of the Birds, whatever it was, in my house, and they would just come and eat my eyeballs right there, and I could just scream into the living room, because that way I wouldn't have to see the fight or hear the lack of activity in the fight via the broadcast. If I have the one criticism of those guys, I love John Gooden. And I love Dan Hardy. I think I would love to start seeing them do some American television appearances with the way they do commentary. I think they're great. But if there's one knock on them, and frankly, all the UFC commentators, not even just partial to them, the one, and maybe Rogan's the exception here because he'll just call it down the middle for the most part, is when a fight is bad, they just won't say it. Like, that fight wasn't bad. That was epically bad fight. I mean, truly one of the worst fights that UFC could even make given the existing roster. It was abysmal. And that Taehyung Bang versus Nick Hine fight was just dreadful as well. Just dreadful. So, you know, um, they should have an ability to call that out. But, yeah, the card wasn't great. The only thing is, like, look, I get what people say, but what did you expect? You know, uh, it was an afternoon card in, in, in Germany. I mean, is it really going to be that great? And I'm like, well, no, I mean – there's something to be said for managing your expectations. Okay, fair enough. But at the same time, you, you, if, if you're hedging your bets and you're managing your expectations, that's your signal up front that you're grading on a curve because you know the quality is bad. So that's the first argument against it. Like you're already, if you're, if you're choosing to grade on a curve, you're choosing to grade in a way that is, um, that is uh, signaling that you know you're dealing with something lesser here. And the second part is I don't even understand, like, it, it's okay that you manage your expectations somewhat, but you can't do it to the point of negating criticism generally, right? Like, so I saw some people being like, you know, what did you expect? It was a middle of the afternoon card. Okay. Um, I still expect it to be good, <laughs> right? I don't uh, – if you say, like, um, oh, I took my – I'm going to this repair shop down the street, you know, and it's got one star on Yelp and uh, it's people tell me not to go there. I went to go get my brakes fixed there and they didn't break. And then I wound up running into um, a bunch of elderly ladies crossing the street. Someone can't, I mean, are you going to say to someone, well, what did you expect? I, mean, well, I guess you could at that point. But the point being is if you go to a butcher, <laughs> I'm trying to make a better example. If you go to a butcher and, uh, the butcher is called the feces and meat shop and there's feces on your meat. Someone should be like, you know, what did you expect? I mean, you know, it's still good. No, you shouldn't go to the feces and meat shop. Like what did you expect is not a defense. What did you expect is an indictment that that's, it's the reverse. It's not, it's not, it's not justification of it. If someone says, well, what did you expect? They're basically telling you you're right. 
They're basically. I mean, there's again, you should be. I don't expect the world. I don't expect it to be UFC 202. I don't expect it to be Shogun versus Dan Henderson one. But there's a level of excellency that I expect, and I don't care if you change your product so much that that threshold begins to be hard to reach. That's on you. That's not on me. There's still a standard that we're going to define, and I'll be loose with it as much as I can be, but either it's good or it's not, and it wasn't good. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't good. So saying things like, well, what did you expect? I expect it to be good. Even with managed expectations, it was not good. And if you're having to manage expectations and then say back to someone, well, what did you expect? I mean, this is what it is. It's still fine. Nope. Nope. If you're having to put those conditions on it, the problem is not with me or the viewer. It's with the person putting those conditions on it. Johnny Hendricks saga. Hey, look, I was having a back and forth debate with a few people about the current situation about Johnny Hendricks, whose career is in limbo, or at least his run in the UFC, and, and some have even claimed that they believe he'll be cut by the UFC in the next 12 months. That's hard to believe, but maybe. He's currently 2-4 and four in his last six fights and is way down the pecking order from the likes of Woodley and Maya Lawler. The loss to Gastelum has left him a bit of a wasteland, and it's bizarre seeing a guy who held the welterweight title just under two years ago at this point. Certainly agree with that. The only matchup that seems to make sense for him right now is a rematch with Rick Story and both fighters on a losing run. He clearly needs to sit back and assess where he is going and making a vital change needed to push, at least push forward rather than backwards. Where do you see the career of Hendricks going? Is it outside of the UFC? Does he need to take some time away? Can he afford to do that considering he turns 33 years old next week or is it too late? I don't think he can afford to take time off. I think also his restaurant closed. Well, that was, I don't think, any big surprise necessarily. But um, point being is I don't think he can take time off. The the What to do with him. If I was – here's the interesting part about this. Let's see who he fights next because I think that will tell us a lot about um, how UFC matchmakers feel about him. Now, of course, he might be going out there and saying, I want to fight the very, very best. But I guess my point is this. If they go out there and they give him some, like, I, I don't know what the name would be, but let's say someone we could all reasonably agree was a tune-up fight. Um, that, to me, would tell me that UFC matchmakers have some belief that long-term he can be rehabilitated and just back into something. If, on the other hand, he keeps fighting like these murderers and loses, I think what it would say is either one of two things. One, that matchmakers were either like, either you can do this or you can't, or two, that even if they were, hey, let's give you a tune-up fight, he was just insistent to not take it, which would complicate things more. But I guess I'm just saying is if he, if he gets a tune-up fight, that's a signal that, A, he can be re- potentially be rehabilitated, and, and B, that UFC matchmakers feel he's worth rehabilitating. Um, I don't know that he needs that story fight. It would be kind of interesting because obviously he lost the story back when he was not losing you guys regularly. Um, and so there's like a lot of redemptive value there. Fair enough. It's, it's an interesting fight. I, I, I don't know that he needs that one necessarily, but, uh, it, it certainly would prove a lot if he won. But if he lost, it would be like, okay, well, why did we give this guy an easier tune-up fight when we had the chance, you know? And maybe it's because they don't want to. Someone says, Luke, would you agree the IV ban has hurt Hendricks along with the losses to Robbie? People love to blame USADA. But is it more than just PEDs? I would say whatever one's feelings about PEDs related to old um, Johnny Hendricks, I feel like the weight cutting has absolutely destroyed him. I don't know that to be the true for uh, 
you know, all time, but seems to me, man, that uh, that has absolutely wrecked him. Chris Lehman was uh, saying that uh, he has to take, you know, hormones or some sort of medication the rest of his life because he wrecked his thyroid with weight cutting. I, I can only imagine the long-term damage that Johnny Hendricks has done. It is probably quite substantial. So, so to your point, I definitely agree. Uh, Habib versus Maya. Yeah, entirely hypothetical and a tad unrealistic. How do you think a Habib versus Maya matchup would go down? I think Maya would have his way, y'all. If for no other reason, let's say that they're equally skilled. They have different skills in different departments in different ways, but let's say that they were roughly evenly skilled. Maya is just much bigger. Maya is huge. Maya is huge. I've seen him in person, and he was fighting at, at middleweight at the time. The fact that he's not fighting at welterweight, I think, gives people the wrong. It's huge. He was, I think, if he was not cutting and whatever, he could easily get above 200 pounds. Um, I don't think Habib ever gets even close to that. Um, he's a much bigger dude. Right? All right, it's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine. See what we got here. How many registered users do you guys have? I don't know. It's in the thousands, of course. I don't know. Thoughts, predictions for JoJo versus Andrade. P.S. JoJo is my favorite female fighter, so I'm inclined to say Ward JoJo. Um, the longer that one goes, it'll be better for her, but she's got a I mean, the thing about Andrade is what? She has big, quick, powerful strikes early in the fight, and to the extent you can neutralize that, either work her on the outside or way on the inside or get the takedown, you know, there's a lot that can be done there, but she's tough. It's a very, very tough fight. Do you think Dan Hardy would have got the belt had his title run been at lightweight? Probably not. Will you be at 204 with us, Brits? I don't think so, guys. So, Do you think Overeem will be in the greatest of all time discussion if he beats Miocic? He will be in the discussion, certainly. There will be a place for him there, given the unique array of accolades he holds. Very, very unique. Um, but I don't know that there'll be a consensus behind the idea that he's the best ever. Certainly in the discussion at that point. True, false. Tim Kennedy seems like a guy, if he had power, would order a code red in real life. I mean, like from, uh, like from um, a few good men? Maybe. Who would win in a BJJ match between Dylan Dennis and Demi and Maya? I would still say Demi and Maya. Demi and Maya has done a lot more at the black belt level. Thoughts on Robbie versus Cowboy now confirmed. Man, how do you not love that fight? Jeez. Who is the one person out there who hates that fight? That's going to be incredible. Can you imagine if Cowboy beats the former welterweight champion? Can you imagine? I mean, how do you not give that guy a title shot after that, you know? Um, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they could if they did or didn't want to. I'm just saying he could have a really strong case, a really strong case. And I don't think that's going to be a blowout by any stretch. Has Johnny Hendricks' magic hitting power slowly gotten weaker since the fight against GSP? It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? Overeem has 14 losses, but six at light heavyweight. Hua twice, Noguera twice, Arona, and Liddell. Okay, so that means he has eight at heavyweight. Or whatever other weights he has competed at. Should the UFC do more of their smaller shows on European time? 
folks seem to like it for the Berlin card. I can imagine if you're a European fan, you would want it on European time. I, I don't mind the cards being on European time. I actually like it that they're middle of the afternoon. I just don't like when Georges Danho versus Christian Colombo is on the card. That's all. Do you think CM Punk will continue to fight in the UFC if he wins? Definitely. I definitely feel like they can find him people to, people to fight. It's not going to be difficult. You know, I don't mean like even in the ranks. I mean, if they need to go find another Mickey Gall somewhere or whatever, they can do that. It won't, it won't be a challenge. Just curious, why does the UFC never go to D.C.? I know previously there was an issue where um, there was a tax on any kind of pay-per-view event here. So they didn't want to do it. But boxing promoters come here all the time. Uh, I've asked the UFC about that. They have gone back to Northern Virginia. They have gone back to the Eagle Bank Arena, what used to be called the Patriot Center. They did that with that Mendez versus um, Ricardo Ramos card. Remember that? The basis of their support is that Northern Virginia market, not so much D.C. proper. I'm sad to report. Of course, the Northern Virginia market is where people who are born and raised in Northern Virginia support the Dallas Cowboys. So their opinions on anything is pretty much, you know, a non-issue, but it's the truth. Did CM Punk have trained in catch-as-catch-can wrestling? That would not have made a difference this far into his career. Without naming gyms, are you less surprised when fighters from certain teams test hot? Sure. Vader versus Gus next. I certainly hope. God, do we really want to get into this? On the Kaepernick situation? Um, long story short, on the Kaepernick situation, I, I, uh, I basically don't care if people sit for the national anthem. I just, it doesn't. It should bother me because it's part of the flag code, and I can't stand it when the American Outlaws, the the Barra Brava, as it were, for the United States men's and women's national team in soccer, these clowns that just desecrate the flag over and over again. I absolutely cannot stand them. However, um, generally as a form of, of like political protest, if at least you're going to disobey flag code, there is some kind of attempted push at seriousness here, right? Uh, but... It's not about like Colin Kaepernick, who I don't particularly find him to be an interesting guy. Um, you know, whenever he was speaking, I always wait for a dude or a bro to follow everything he's saying. But this is a general point. Like when people are like, "If you don't like this place, leave and see how much you like it somewhere else." There's a point to be made to that, which is I've I've been very fortunate to travel around and I've seen other countries. Um, and uh, obviously, in the last few years, I spent a little more time in Latin America. But of course, Europe has its own issues as well with how they treat aggrieved communities. And um, what you'll find is that in some of these countries um, where the minority populations are not treated well, they don't really speak up very often, or when they do, it's in these very seldom riotous outbursts because they just can't take it anymore. And um, to me, it's not a coincidence that we have, generally speaking, uh, a place where um, aggrieved minorities can, by a number of different metrics, say they're treated better relative to other aggrieved minorities in other countries, um, and also because they have the ability to speak out. Which, In other words, I'm not asking you to endorse anything Colin Kaepernick is saying. All I'm saying is I would rather be in a country where Colin Kaepernick does that sort of stuff, not because I care about standing shoulder to shoulder with him, 
but because I would rather have a country where if people believe there is injustice, whether or not you or I agree with him, they have mechanisms to make that known. I would rather be in a country that confronts these sorts of things because what you find is that particularly if you go to Latin America, they have a de facto caste system there. Like if you are born black and poor there, I got news for you. You are going to black and poor there. And there is no very little exception to that. There's just no social mobility whatsoever in some of these places. Okay. So when people are like, why don't you go live there? And they don't take them up on, I mean, if it was really so amazing everywhere else, there probably would be some level of understandable matriculation. Populations move all over the world for these kinds of reasons all the time. Um, um, but the point being is it's not, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't, like it's not better elsewhere in certain respects because we have to, in an ugly way, often confront them here. So they go hand in hand. You just want to be in a place where people can say, I don't like this, even if you don't necessarily agree with them or like them personally. You just want to have that process in place because eventually there is going to be someone who raises an issue you do care about and you're going to be glad that they did. Maybe not this time, maybe not the next time, but eventually. Who are you picking to win the Michael Bisping versus Dan Henderson fight? I will, I will, it's tough. I will side with Michael Bisping, but I, it's tough. It's tough. How is Roy Nelson still on the heavyweight roster? He's won two out of his last eight. I can't even answer UFC questions really it's a roster anymore. It's not, remember back in the day, if you had three losses, you'd be, remember that? I mean, those days are, are long since gone. Long since gone. Uh, let's see. True, false. In a three-round fight, Maya would likely dominate Nick Diaz on the ground, but won't submit him. Probably. Probably, yeah. How excited are you for Lawler versus Cerrone? I think I peed a little. All right. Well, you, my friend, have to work on your um, of being housebroken. <laughs> True or false? Faber retires after UFC 203. Ooh, I'll say true. Gall submits CM Punk. I'll also say true. Brown stops Verdum. I think unlikely, but, you know, heavyweight's crazy. Overeem defeats Miocic. I'll just say true. And Triple G knocks out Brooke. I'll also say true. Lots of true there. Not all true. Uh, let's see. I canceled Fight Pass over Ariel's ban. Is the new management better for journalists? Or is it too early to say? It is far too early to say. I suspect they won't be much different, to be honest. Dana keeps throwing shade on GSP's comeback intentions because he's not willing to just bend over for him. All right. There you have it. Uh, what's the over-under on CM Punk even making weight? Oh, he'll make weight. I'm not too worried about that. Neither should you be. Dong Hung Kim versus Gunnar Nelson on UFC Fight Night 99. Who will win? That is a tough one. I'm going to say Gunnar Nelson, but that is a hard one to call. That is a great, great evenly matched fight. Really, really, really good. Really good. All right, let's finish out a few more of these if we can. Let's see. Let's see. Someone goes, Tough24, have you watched the first episode yet? Yes, I did. Personally, I was, I was highly impressed by the level of skill they displayed. I don't think any other season has had such skilled combatants. If the four guys we saw were any indication, the next closest season would have been season 14, which produced Dillashaw versus Dodson. What happens if third seed Tim Elliott wins, though? P.S. You pronounce my handle. 
a la Rick, like the dude who sacked Rome. Uh, okay. Have I watched the Ultimate Fighter 2040 yet? Yes, I did. Uh, and I, someone even linked some of the things I had to say about it. It was awesome. It was awesome. It was so good. Now, I don't know if it's going to be that way all season, but uh, it was incredible. The fights were really high level um, for the most part. Um, the talent is super legit. I love the tournament. I love the stakes. It just feels like, and 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 they and they it had the lowest ratings of any debut episode of Ultimate Fighter ever. You know, I mean, that just tells you when the market is, I suppose. But um, finally, they do something that is so unpalatable to the fan base that that I love it. Uh, I guess that's just the way it goes sometimes. But you know, if you haven't seen it yet, I don't know how the rest of the season's going to go. Maybe it'll turn directions, especially given the bad ratings. I, I don't know what they're going to do. But I can tell you that first episode was incredible, and it was really well done. And the guys at Fox and the ladies at Fox and Fox Sports 1, they outdid themselves with that one because it just felt fresh. It felt like I had to watch the fights. Um, it felt like – and the other thing I really enjoyed about it that I kind of mentioned previously was um, they gave all of the people who had been selected – because you didn't fight to get into the house. You, they, you just got picked, 16 of them. And uh, what happened was they gave them cameras, but they didn't, not like this kind of camera, maybe this one, but like a small one. And they told them to document their lives before the show. And they did. And what you found out was that that was a really cool way to see someone's life through their eyes um, in ways that a camera crew may not necessarily get in the same way. And it speaks to like sort of in terms of technology, how we've all become better videographers of our life in the world of Instagrams and Facebook lives and periscopes and things like that, we, we, we're better at documenting things for um, digestible mass consumer purposes. And that was a novel way of getting a lot out of them that I don't know you would have gotten necessarily in another context or, you know, maybe four or five years ago. It felt, it felt really fresh right now, and I really enjoyed it, and there's just a lot of cool moments. Um, so we'll see how the season progresses. But, yeah, like episode one, I was pleasantly surprised by. Pleasantly. Uh, and the fight square, especially the first fight, was really competitive and great. Very great. Triple G versus Kell Brook. Are you looking forward to this fight? Apparently it's doing, like, big uh, interest uh, over in the UK. Korean MMA. Luke, what's next for Duho Choi? I think there's a new prospect. I think he's got a ton of uh, potential. He obviously has ridiculous power and hand speed. But I need to see him up against someone who can really test him. I'm looking to see the return of the Korean Zombie here soon. Hopefully, I'm looking for. Um, when we speak about Korean MMA, obviously UFC has gone there, but they don't have a sustained presence there. So I'm looking for some kind of. I mean, there's been a there's been a class of fighters that have graduated out of that market, but I'm looking for like additional waves of it. You know, this is what I, I mean. Not, not that anyone ever said this about Korea, but when people are always like, "It's going to be the next Brazil," you know, Mexico's going to be the next Brazil, maybe in 20 years or something. Uh, but I think what I'm looking for is relative to that argument is can they produce consistent, you know, here's a graduating class, two years later, here's another graduating class. Like, they can just keep pumping out guys. Brazil can do that. Good question. Why does the media, MMA media, specifically in MMA fighting, pay so much attention to how much cards make, pay-per-view buys, and the financial affairs of promotion. This seems to be a really odd obsession is actually being driven by the MMA media as opposed to being driven by fan curiosity. That's probably true to an extent. I don't know that there's a ton of fan interest in that sort of thing, but if you're asking its relevancy, 
this is a sport where CM Punk gets to ignore and bypass uh, every known standard of excellence because he can draw. Like, why is he in the UFC? It's not because he fought his way there. It's because, again, even if you like him, you have to admit it's because he provides a certain, the right kind of celebrity, meaning he comes from a crossover audience and a large one at that, that um, could potentially purchase the product. That's really what this all comes down to. It's the only reason why he's there. Um, that is something that would be, man I mean, the U.S. Open is going on right now. That You have to fight your way through that to, to, to win the, you know, the, the U.S. Open, mid-Orleans. Um, right? So it's, it, the sport doesn't operate in the same way. It is very low to the earth. And so measuring television ratings and measuring ticket sales and measuring gate receipts doesn't only tell you about someone's, for example, leveraging power with the Ultimate Fighting Championship or how they're received in certain countries or what their popularity is generally or what their role is in the company. So it can have this really informative um, basis by which to judge other things, but then it tells you about the health of the business generally, right? It gives us a way to understand the sport that maybe the fans don't actually want. I, I can certainly believe that, but for the purposes of what I'm saying, um, it actually can be quite beneficial for us to, to help understand the mechanics of things and why decisions are made and why they go certain places and why they don't and why they do certain things and why they don't. Understanding those uh, enable me to understand the sport in a way that absent those metrics, I wouldn't have nearly the same level of um, literacy about. Okay. I appreciate you guys watching. Um, thank you so much. Check us out on iTunes.com slash promotional practice. I'm on SoundCloud as well. Um, give it a thumbs up. Share the video. I always appreciate that. Luke Thomas Show is next. I'm going to have old Stipe Miocic on and then Lisa Ann. Yes, that Lisa Ann. She's going to do some fancy football stuff for us. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, okay. Appreciate you guys watching. Thank you so much. I'm going to be off for three weeks. I'll be back in three weeks. So until then... Thank you so much for watching. Stay frosty.